We're in the middle of a six-part series on the church's priorities and goals over the coming year. Uh, You'll recall that Matt started us off with a talk on community at the beginning of the year, and after that, uh, Grant then spoke on the priority of the Word and of prayer. Last week, Grant spoke to us on evangelism. And this week, my assignment is to speak to you on the topic of discipleship. So I'm going to speak on what I consider to be the heart of discipleship. And as my text, I'm going to use Luke 5, 1 through 11. Now, let me, let me start by uh, creating the scene here. You know, several times a year, we have church picnics down at the lake, which I think is very special. Uh, we, we congregate as a group, and then at the end of the uh, picnic, we have a big baptism down by the lake. And so our, our whole group goes down to the shore there and... And I often wonder what, uh, what the other folks are thinking. You know, there are often boaters who are pulling, um, you know, uh, skiers and, and others and, and people just swimming. And I, I like to watch them because at times they will stop. And they will literally stop. And in reverence, they will watch as Grant's out there baptizing people. And, and I, I wonder what, you know, what are they thinking as they watch this? I think it's an incredible corporate witness that we do something like that. Um, and, you know, I think it's probably not too different uh, from the times Jesus used to preach down by the lake. And so let me set that scene for you. Uh, I wonder what it m- what must have been like to be one of those first disciples. And you're getting to actually listen to Jesus speak for the first time. He's walking on the earth. You're getting to hear him. But, you know, at the same time, um, you know, they had, some of those first guys had a rough go of it, as you know. Uh, and I'm just glad that no one's been following me around Writing down every gaffe I've made is an object lesson for every, every other generation to learn from from then on. But that's why we love Peter, isn't it? Because he is one of us, and he's real. And, uh, and we get the benefit of his real-life uh, responses and actions and reactions and missteps. So let's take a look at Luke 5, um, a very familiar passage to you. Jesus is down at the lake. He's preaching and teaching to the crowds. Uh, you'll notice the crowds are pressing in on him. Uh, in fact, they're leaning forward to hang on every word. And so let me read, let me start. I'm going to read uh, the first few verses here to get us started. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee, as you know. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, uh, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So here's a scene. Uh, You've got uh, four fishermen here, probably the two teams of brothers, right? Uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. They're they're in a fishing business. Now they're out. uh, They've been out fishing all night. Um, And and they're uh, cleaning their nets, right? So you fish at night. We'll go into that here in a second. They're cleaning the nets at the time um, when Jesus is speaking. The crowds are pressing in on Jesus. Uh, they don't appear to be participating in this, if you'll notice. And you think, uh, now, if you read some of the other, uh, other Gospels at times, like in uh, Matthew 4, 18 to 20, you'll think that Jesus sort of just walked up to people and kind of cast this spell on them and said, follow me, and they just dropped everything. And Well, actually, that's not the case. Uh, they knew him. They knew him for a while. In fact, they sort of hung out with him at, at times. Uh, Peter had met Jesus some months before this particular episode. He'd heard him speak. He'd seen him heal. He'd seen him deliver people from demons. In fact, he had stayed in his home. If we look at the uh, prior six or eight verses there in chapter 4, verse 38, you'll see that he stayed in his home and healed his mother-in-law. I'm sure Simon appreciated that. (laughs) 
And uh, he'd, he'd heard John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. So they'd been around him for a little bit. Uh, but on this particular occasion, they don't appear to be a part of the crowd. And I find it interesting that the crowd is pressing in on Jesus, hanging on every word. They're just sort of hanging out, in a sense, to use a modern vernacular. Um, and then at this point, then Jesus decides to borrow uh, Peter's boat for a podium. I mean, they're pressing him so much that he can't even get any distance to speak. So uh, they're watching the net and say, hey, Peter, can I borrow your boat? Ah. Here's my very complicated slideshow today. Um, and, and asked him if he would back out, back out a little bit so that he could use his boat for a podium, essentially, and get a little distance and then speak. And then he sits down in the boat uh, to teach because, as you know, back then, rabbis, when they taught, they sat down. Um, Luke 4.20 gives us another example of that. Today, of course, we stand behind a really cool plexiglass podium. But back then, they sat... <laughs> In a boat. So, something very different is about to happen, though, today. I'm looking at verse 4 now. Let's pick up there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Now, think about this for a minute. Here is a carpenter telling a fisherman how to do his job. Now, what's wrong with this command? Because, you know, the fact is, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Now, we're not talking rod and reel fishing here, right? We're talking big, heavy nets. And when do fishermen typically fish? At night. Yeah. And why do you fish at night? Because that's when the fish are feeding near the shore in the shallow end. So you're working, you're throwing your nets out there. It's very hard work, tough business. And as the text says, they've been out fishing all night and hadn't caught a thing. So, okay, Jesus, it's the middle of the day. You say launch out into the deep part of the lake. Yeah, where are the fish in the middle of the day? They are at the bottom of the lake out in the middle. So Jesus tells them to do something that really doesn't make any sense at all. Pull on out for one more time. Throw your nets out one more time. Thank you, Jesus. I just finished cleaning them. Yeah, I'll throw them out in the lake one more time. Because you say, now I'm adding a little sarcasm here. I don't sense that Peter had any sarcasm at all in his response, but I know that I certainly would have if it had been me. Hmm? So, middle of the day, fish are out in the deep part of the lake. They've been fishing all night, have nothing to show for it. But, but Peter does know there's something different about this guy. All right, I've seen you do some pretty unusual things. I've heard you teach, and he calls him master. Uh, He knows his teaching cuts to the heart. You've got some sort of unusual authority. I'm going to obey you. And so Peter takes his first act of faith, his first step of faith in obedience here, and decides uh, to go along. All right, picking up verse 6 again. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now, they've just caught more fish on this one crazy cast than ever in the history of their fishing business. Wrong time of day, wrong location, more fish than they've ever seen. I want you to get a feel for how many fish we're talking here. The nets are beginning to break. Uh, Peter's beginning to panic. He calls his partners, James and John, get out here and help us. They come. They fill up both boats to the point where both boats now are about to sink. 
Now think of that. Both boats are about to sink. The nets are breaking. The boats are sinking. You've got so many fish. You, you have, you know, you are blown away at this point, right? What is going on? Peter is about to react. Now, let me back up. Before we look at Peter's reaction, I'd like to know your reaction. This happens in 21st century America. You see something like this. No, I won't ask it this way. How would your friends react if something like this happened? Think about that for a moment. It'd have to be a different context. It wouldn't be fishing. It'd have to be something else uh, where you suddenly just hit the jackpot. What would, you, what would your response be? Oh, we just found ourselves a new partner. We've just hit the jackpot. This is going to be big. We're talking franchises here. We're going to have to have more boats, more employees. We're going to have to go national with this. But we're going to make a lot of money in the fishing business, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jesus, you, man, you are the one. <laughs> That'd be our response, wouldn't it? Or that'd be the response of some of our friends. Not, not anybody in this room, I know, would respond that way. Right? Can you see that response? What was Peter's real response? Let's take a look, because it is very, very different. Picking up at verse 8. When Peter, uh, when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Wow. Now that's a pretty different reaction, isn't it? Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And let me tell you guys and gals, that's the right response. That is the right response when you find yourself in the presence of holiness, in the presence of deity. There are two things that you are overwhelmed with when you find yourself in the presence of God. Can you think of them? The first one is your personal inadequacy, uh, your personal sinfulness. And the second one is an overwhelming sense of the glory and the holiness of God, of the divine power. And everyone who finds themselves in the presence of God has that exact reaction. Can you think of some other examples in Scripture? where men of God, godly men, had that very response. Can you think of any? How about Isaiah? How about Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5? What did he say when he found himself in the throne room of God? He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Uh, Ezekiel had a similar response. John, his closest friend on earth, and probably his first cousin, uh, the beloved disciple who was closest to him at the Last Supper, uh, had the same reaction when he saw Jesus as he is in his glorified state. Uh, in Revelation 1.17 it says, When I saw him, and they had just described what he looked like, right, as he is, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Wow, that's John's testimony. So I would say that Jesus has Peter's full attention at this point, wouldn't you? (laughs) Um, And and, and let me say this. Jesus gets our attention in lots of different ways. You know, for me, it wasn't a a situation where he did something super miraculous and crazy like he did maybe with Peter and with Paul, you know, um, later. For me, it was through my my biggest failure at the time. I was in the middle of law school hoping to make a national uh, moot court team. I had already made one. This one was the big one I wanted to get on, and you know what? I failed. I didn't make the cut. And it was through that experience then that God really got a hold of my attention. He got my full attention at that point. 
You see, at this point, uh, and let me pick up at uh, verse 10, second half of uh, verse 10 there. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You ever heard the term drop the nets? This is it. This is where it comes from. This is where they drop the nets. Now, what does drop the nets mean? Well, it's, it's sort of a metaphor for uh, I drop my priorities. Uh, I drop my personal ambition, my self-direction. Jesus, see, once you see Jesus for who he is, once you see for who he is and what he's really about, what else matters? What else matters at that point? I'm willing to drop everything to follow you, to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus. See, at this point now, uh, these guys, and all four of them, all four of these disciples, and as you know, three of these four are going to become his inner circle of three, right, of the twelve, among the twelve. At this point, they're no longer just sort of hanging around Jesus from time to time. They are now wholehearted followers of Jesus. And, you know, this is probably a good illustration of what Paul had to say in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, where he said, but, ever, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may gain Christ. See, Jesus and the kingdom of God became first and foremost in their lives from that point on. Now, see, and that is the heart of discipleship. When you see that, when you see Jesus for who he is, when you're willing to follow him wholeheartedly, you're ready to become a disciple. You have reached the heart of discipleship, I think. There is a new centeredness. You're no longer longer acting out of a self-centeredness, but out of a Christ-centeredness. Of course, you come to the place where you put your faith in Jesus, your trust in Jesus, and and become saved. You're forgiven of your sins. But life is different from this point on, right? You are captured by the person of Christ, and you follow him wholeheartedly. So what about you? What about me? Have we come to the place where we have uh, been fully captivated by Jesus? Where we're willing to drop the nets, so to speak, and follow him wholeheartedly wherever he leads? You know, most of us are going to stay right where we are (laughs) and follow Jesus right where we are. But he gets to decide that. I'm no longer the owner of my life. I'm just a steward. He gets to decide, make all the decisions after that. And, you know, I think this is what was called, years ago, uh, one of the guys that discipled me called this the Luke 5 line. You know, before, before this episode, this experience, the, G, the, the disciples that knew Jesus sort of just hung around. They heard him, came and went, st- still did their own thing. And Jesus pursued them on their turf. But after this experience, he called them to follow him, and then they followed him on his turf, the Luke 5 line. So... Now what happens? Now what happens? I'm ready to follow Jesus. Uh, I'm in. (laughs) I'm a wholehearted follower. Now what? Now what happens? Well, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men in Matthew 4.19. Same kind of thing he said right here. Follow and fish. And now to use a legal phrase, these two terms are inextricably intertwined. That is to say they are inseparable They are part of the same thing. To follow Jesus is to be about the fishing that he's doing for men. Discipleship and disciple-making go hand-in-hand together. They are, by definition. Mark 3.14 says that he chose 12 that they might be with him and then that he would equip them to do the ministry that he was doing. 
So that with him principle is indispensable to discipleship and therefore disciple making. Now, let's just let, let's just uh, set a few ground rules. Discipleship or, or a life to life discipleship is relational, highly relational, but it is intentional. Uh, it's more organ- more an organic process than it is an organizational program. Now, by that, I mean it's, it, it's less a formal curriculum than it is uh, an apprenticeship relationship utilizing this with him principle from Mark 3.14. Now, in his seminal book on disciple-making, although it's sort of a misnomer because it's called the Master Plan of Evangelism, Dr. Robert Coleman points out that the essence of Jesus' training program was simply to let his disciples follow him. I'm going to quote him here for a little bit because I think this is important enough. When one stops to think of it, this is an incredibly simple way of doing it. Jesus had no formal school, no seminaries, no outline course of study, no periodic membership classes in which he enrolled his followers. None of these highly organized procedures considered so necessary today entered into his ministry. Amazing as it may seem, all Jesus did to teach these men his way was to draw them close to himself. He was his own school and curriculum. The natural informality of this teaching method of Jesus stood in striking contrast to the formal, almost scholastic procedures of the scribes. These religious teachers insisted on their disciples adhering strictly to certain rituals and formulas of knowledge which distinguished them from others, whereas Jesus asked only that his disciples follow him. Isn't that interesting? Now, Dr. Coleman also observed the time that Jesus invested in these disciples was so much more by comparison uh, to that given to the others that it can only be regarded as a deliberate strategy. He actually spent more time with his 12 disciples than with everybody else in the world put together. He ate with them, slept with them, and talked with them for the most part of his entire active ministry. They walked together along the lonely roads. They visited together in the crowded cities. They sailed and fished together on the Sea of Galilee. They prayed together in the deserts and in the mountains, and they worshiped together in the synagogues and in the temple. See, that's, how, that's what life-to-life discipleship is really about. See, when Jesus was, while Jesus was ministering to other people, his disciples were with him watching, observing, learning, learning to do it themselves, Right? And in this way, his ministry uh, pays double dividends because on the one hand, he's establishing them in the faith, but he's also equipping them to do what he's doing. So Dr. Coleman rightly then concludes that Jesus' disciples got the benefit of everything he said and did to others along with their own personal explanation and counsel. And they clamored for his attention just like sons for a father. Well, so what does uh, discipleship look like in our day? What does it look like in our day and in the modern world? I'd like to read one little verse here in the Amplified Version. This is uh, 2 Timothy 3.10. This is Paul talking to his right-hand man, Timothy, uh, his, his number one lieutenant that he has trained personally and is out there ministering himself. And he says to him in the last book he wrote, uh, Paul to Timothy, Now you have closely observed and diligently followed my teaching, conduct, purpose in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, etc. You have closely observed 
and diligently followed my life, everything about my life, what I'm about, uh, what I believe, the way I treat people, that's discipleship. In The Lost Art of Disciple Making, Leroy Imes, and this is a pretty famous book too, posed this question, why are fruitful, dedicated, mature disciples so rare? The biggest reason is that all too often we have relied on programs and materials or some other thing to do the job. The ministry is to be carried on by people, not programs. Mature disciples are not mass-produced. We cannot drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of a production line. It takes time to make disciples. It takes individual, personal attention. It takes patience and understanding to teach them how to get into the Word of God for themselves, how to feed and nourish their souls, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, how to apply the Word to their lives. And it takes being an example to them of all of the above. Isn't that good? Now, for myself, I can say, this is where I have to get vulnerable, right? (laughs) I've been influenced and trained through lots of different resources through the years. I've heard a lot of good messages. I've listened to lots of good sermon series. I love Tommy Nelson, like any good Bible church guy must. No offense, Grant. We love you, too. Uh, I've read a lot of books. Uh, I've been to lots of conferences. Etc. But I got to tell you, the greatest impact on my life has been the influence of four men in particular, besides my parents, my father, my grandfather. But beyond that, spiritually, four men have made a huge influence on my life, and I'd like to just briefly tell you about them. First guy's name was George Black. He and I went to college together at A&M. A few years later, he left uh, after he graduated. He had a big job at a downtown bank in Houston, and uh, he forsook that to go work at a home for troubled boys out near Uvalde. He was a wholehearted follower. He came back when I was in the middle of law school in 1984, and we spent the next year and a half together. And, and George was a guy who was completely centered on Jesus. I had never been around anybody like that. Uh, he was a wholehearted follower and a, and a man who was in tune with the leading of the Spirit. This guy invested in me for the next year and a half. After that... Uh, I went to practice law in College Station and lived there for 15 years, and, and I teamed up with another old buddy from college. His name was Blake Purcell, and he was running the Navigator Ministry at A&M at the time. And I asked him, without knowing what I was asked, getting into, if he would disciple me, and he did for the next four years. And I tell you, Blake, I had never known a man who had such a passion for the Word of God um, as Blake did and such a highly focused disciple-making vision that he had. I had never been around that. It was really funny. I, had, I helped him for the first couple of years. Uh, I led the worship singing. Um, I was with him in Bible studies. I was Anytime we did something, I was there. And I remember we were driving home late one night, and <laughs> he said, Shane, I just really want really to thank you for uh, you know, the, the way you've served the ministry and, and, um, and the stuff you've done, the activities you've been involved in. I just look forward to the day that you actually uh, get in the ministry yourself. Uh, what have I been doing all this time? Well, you know, these are good works. These are good things. We need this. But I look forward to the day when God gives you a few men to invest in, gives you some men to disciple yourselves. And I have to tell you, that thought had never crossed my mind before then. I thought, well, I thought just going to activities and doing stuff was the ministry. And it is. But there's another whole realm of ministry, of of investing your life in the lives of other people, very much like parenting. Um, It is the heart of the ministry. 
And then the third guy, he, he moved to Russia. Blake moved to Russia in 1990 and said, I'm taking off. You're in charge. I go, wait a minute. I have a full-time job, three kids. My wife's going to kill me. How can I possibly run this ministry? Figure it out. Trust God. So I did. <laughs> and for the next eight years, I ran the NAV student ministry at A&M. And, and the guy over me then was a guy named Mark Day. And Mark was such a gentle, loving man. He was a good build. These other two guys were about my age. Mark was about 15 years older than me. Just a loving Loving man, very patient. I needed lots of patience. <laughs> he was a very gracious counselor to me, listened to me, empowered me, focused me. Um, and I have to say, he's still one of my closest friends today. He lives up in Kansas City area. But we, we worked very closely together for the next eight years after that. So that takes me up to uh, about 99, I suppose. But in the mid-90s, I met a man named Ford Madison. And Ford... Ford took me to another level. Ford's about 82 now. At that point, he'd been discipling men for 40-plus years. Um, and this guy is uber-talented guy. I'm nothing like him, except, except what really struck me about him was is that no matter what else he did, and he sets up the boards of some pretty significant ministries, and he's a pretty successful commercial real estate guy, but his heart and his passion were uh, life-to-life, one-to-one, Disciple making. You could look across at Denny's. I remember sitting there in a meeting with Mark Day once, looking across the, uh, you know, the area there, and seeing him having breakfast with a new guy. He was always discipling a handful of guys behind the scenes. No, no fanfare, no flashy thing. A faithful man. He's been doing it now for almost 60 years. He's been discipling men. I still meet with him. I met with him a lot then. I still get together with him. Oh no, once every several months. Um, he was the first man I knew that really modeled what I'll call a fully integrated life. He, he, you know, if you're going to be involved in disciple-making ministry, you're going to have to balance family and work and ministry. And if you don't figure that out, you just won't do it. You won't get there. He was a man who had figured that out, and he helped me really, uh, I guess, figure it out in a better way than I had up to that point. Um, advanced spiritual wisdom, I have to say. Boy, this, this man really helped me in ways that nobody else ever had and still does. And, and a focus on spiritual multiplication. He doesn't get involved in any ministry that does not itself multiply. If I invest in a guy like you, my hope is that someday you'll be able to do what I'm doing. You'll go on and you'll reach someone else after that. So those four men in particular, George Black, Blake Purcell, Mark Day, Ford Madison, they deeply marked my life. And I really appreciate their investment in me. So uh, let me end by, um, I'd like to give you, Brian, I've been dying to say this. I want to give you seven things that are central to life-to-life discipleship. Um, Seven blessings, really, and they're all interrelated, and I'll I'll try to be brief here. Uh, The first one is what I'll call a a closer relationship. You know, uh, you build love and respect, trust and communication, and, and a guy really gets to know you. You can't hide. If you're spending time with them every week, you can't hide. They're going to get to know you, and it's going to affect you. And they can help you, and they can inspire you because of that closer relationship. Um, personal example, you can see them up close. Uh, you can see if they're for real. Do they have integrity? Do they have credibility? You can see their life up close and their ministry up close. And let me tell you, there's no substitute for that. Personal training. You know, I can get a lot out of big group 
uh, ministry, small group ministry, but there's nothing like one-to-one. Or at times I've done one-to-two or one-on-three occasionally. Um, but, but having the benefit of, of the input, the direct input of someone on a regular basis. And to let, let me say this, to let someone speak into your life. Do you let someone speak into your life and say the hard things? Because someone told me years ago, you know what? No one's ever lost an argument with themselves. Now think about that for a minute. They sure haven't. You know, you get in a dispute with someone or you don't like the way what they've said. You go home and you ruminate on it and you get it all fixed out in your head. No one's ever lost an argument with themselves. But when you let someone get close enough to really address the truth and what's going on, see, now you're beginning to address what I'm going to call that independent rebellious spirit. I believe every man, every woman is born with a deeply independent rebellious spirit by nature. It's part of our fallen nature. And, and we need to be trained. We need to be broken. You know the difference? We, you heard the term meekness or a meek horse. Anybody ever heard that term? What is a meek horse? A meek horse is not a weak horse. A meek horse is strength under the control of a master. Think man from Snowy River. You know how long he chased that black stallion? <laughs> and then he finally caught him. And then once he trained that stallion... Then it was the strength under the control of a master. Now, see, this is, what, this is the heart of what discipleship is all about, addressing and dealing with that independent, rebellious spirit, submitting to an older brother or sister in the Lord, and letting them affect your life. Because that goes very much against the grain of what I'm going to call the American spirit. You know what the American spirit is? We're born with it. It's so much a part of you, you don't even realize it. Here it is. I will follow you. As long as I think you're right. But when I, in my sovereignty, decide you're wrong, I am free to rebel and go start my own thing. That's why we have this country. That's why we have about a million denominations in this country. Because I will follow you as long as I believe you're right. But when I decide you're wrong, I'm free to go start my own deal. That's the American spirit. That is not the spirit of a wholehearted follower of Jesus. See, even David, even David, when he's having spears thrown at him by King Saul, does he overthrow King Saul? No. He submits. He submits to the king, to a mad king, because he is ultimately submitted to a sovereign God. God will often put a King Saul in your life to kill the King Saul in your heart. And then he'll, then he'll set you free <laughs> after that. So he probably doesn't really kill you. Um, greater impact. You know, through regular, weekly, or biweekly contact, uh, you can have so much, it can have so much more impact on your life. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's about transformation and change. We're wanting to become more and more like Jesus. And if someone's meeting with you regularly, that's more likely to happen. It can have a more deeper and more pervasive impact on your life. Vision and mission. Well, if you're around a man who's a follower of Jesus, you're going to pick up his vision and his mission. And hopefully it should include the great commandment, loving God with your whole heart, your whole being, loving people. It should include the great commission, a passion to make disciples everywhere you go, wherever you are. It should include a passion for holy conduct and character. I even heard one guy say it this way. This was, his, this was his personal mission statement. He said, love people, help many, train a few. 
That speaks, that speaks to my economy. I can't do everything, but I can do that. I can love the people I come in contact with. I can help many in a general way. And I can disciple or train a few. I like that. Well, the last two topics I think go hand in hand, encouragement and accountability. You know, Paul in First Thess 2 described himself on the one hand in verse 7 as a nursing mother and in verse 11 as an exhorting father. We need that balance of both. I need to be encouraged, but I also need to be held accountable. I need them both. I probably need them in a three-to-one ratio because I'm pretty weak. I need three parts encouragement for, for every one part of accountability, but I do need them both. You know, I've been around a guy who's nothing but hardcore accountability, and it just kind of beats you down. I've been around the guys that are just so encouraging, sappy, that it just kind of wears you out. I need the balance of both uh, because it will help me in my spiritual walk and developing spiritual, good spiritual habits of being regular in the Word, regular in prayer, uh, for my personal growth and my personal ministry. It'll just help me persevere in life. It'll also help me deal with sin issues, character issues, and most of all, it will stimulate brokenness in my life. So let me ask, have you experienced life-to-life discipleship relationship? If you want to, let us know. I'm going to stop now, and I am going to ask Brian Davis to come up and share briefly on his... uh, his experience at being discipled. Brian? Thanks. Well, Shane asked me to, to share a few things that have been meaningful and impactful to me about discipleship over the past number of years. So I worked all week long to come up with a list that starts with the same letter, has the same number of syllables, and ends with the same letter. Because I was going to beat uh, Grant and Matt, but actually I couldn't do that, so I just have a random list. <laughs> and you can tell that I've been discipled by Shane because I have seven things too, but I'll go fast. I really did. I thought that was great. First, I will start out by telling you that um, you can be discipled without even knowing it. <laughs> yeah, only I could do that probably, but my, my first experience with discipleship was when I was a senior at Baylor. I was involved in a ministry that actually I was just going to a Bible study, but the leader of that ministry came up to me after a while and asked if I wanted to get together on a regular basis. And I knew we weren't just going to talk about sports and weather, but I had no idea this was going to be discipleship. Um, because he just came along where I was at that point in my walk. And it was very, like Shane said, very relational. He met me where I was. He didn't pull out a contract of discipleship with here's our, here's our point of action and how many minutes we're going to meet and how long we're going to meet. I had, I had no idea what discipleship was, never heard of it. I just knew this guy was pouring into me. And actually it wasn't until I was involved, actually at Denton Bible Church that Shane mentioned years later that I realized that was discipleship. That guy tricked me. Uh, <laughs> But actually, you know what? That was the very first time that I'd ever been challenged to memorize Scripture. I'd ever been challenged to actually read entire books of the Bible at a time. And so when I look back at that, without having any idea what was going on, I had a great discipleship relationship. And that also speaks to my second point, that the process really is not overwhelming. This guy at the time didn't pick me up and think, man, this guy's a new believer. I've got to get him from A to Z. He just helped me take the next step with where... God knew I needed to go next, and it was a short-term relationship with that first guy, but he helped me take the next step, and that's actually how it's worked in my life from then up till now is that guys have been brought along to help me take whatever that next step is as I have needed to learn what does it look like to be a godly husband, what does it look like to be a godly father, a godly businessman. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't see any of that modeled. I didn't see that from my parents. I saw hard work and responsibility. 
Um, I saw discipline. I saw a lot of good things, but I didn't see it from a biblical, godly perspective. And so God has brought guys in my life to really pour into me and to help me take those next steps. And when we do meet, we cover the Bible. We cover Bible studies. We go through some very intentional studies, but then that's just one part of it because then we get to transition and say, well, what you're learning in the Bible, how does that now um, you know, play out in your everyday life with how you deal with your wife or how you handle this problem at work or how you deal with your kids? So there's very much a felt need, you know, application of what we're studying in the Bible as there should be. Um, just this week, I actually heard discipleship. I wasn't listening to a message on it, but I heard discipleship brought up, and it was referenced as playing above the rim. And how is that? Well, I know that if I sit down with Shane or with somebody else who's discipling me, at some point in our talk, I'm going to be asked, so how are you doing spiritually? Or what's God teaching you lately in your life? And I need to have an answer for that, not just so I look good to them, but because I need to have an answer to that. That's just like Shane said, that's just holding me accountable for what I need to be doing and what if I want to grow and if I want to be the godly man and businessman and husband and all that, um, I need to be in the word and knowing that I'm going to be asked those tough questions sometimes is a motivation that you need when you're otherwise busy or um, you just wouldn't make time for it. So that's extremely helpful. And I'd also just say that helping a guy grow um, from the discipler standpoint, when you're helping somebody grow, that can be extremely rewarding. Because sometimes you wonder, do I have anything to add? You know, am, I, am I making any progress with this guy? Is he just sitting here counting down the clock so he can you know, fly out of the restaurant at lunch and go back to work? But several years ago, in fact, the very first guy I discipled, it was a neat time. I was discipling this guy, and my wife was also kind of mentoring his wife. And after a while, his wife told my wife, and I love it when Mike meets with Brian because he comes home different. And that wasn't because of me, of course, but it was just great to see that yeah, God can use you. He can use his word through you to impact somebody else. And, and by the way, that same guy that I got to disciple, um, he and I challenged each other. We memorized the entire book of Philippians, and we recited it for our small group. And that was a very neat exercise. And then when he moved away, moved to another church, small church, he went straight to the senior pastor and asked that guy to disciple him. And so that's multiplication, like Shane's talking about. And I'm almost done. I would say that whether, when I'm at a meeting, a discipleship meeting, whether I'm the discipler or the disciplee, I always walk away um, encouraged, refreshed, challenged, motivated, any of those good words, <laughs> because it helps to focus you. It helps you when you come alongside somebody who's fighting the same battle you're fighting, who has the same values that you have, um, who is trying to live the same kind of life that you're trying to live, and just to know that you're not in it alone. I mean, we know that, but that's a great reminder when you're sitting there talking about all this application. And so last, um, because I am still on a journey, I'm trying to take that continual next step. I really can't imagine a time when I won't need a Paul in my life, somebody who is older and wiser than me, to, to pour into me. And I didn't know that Shane was going to mention his guy, Ford Madison, but, I mean, Shane's old to me, but his guy's 82. <laughs> um, an 82-year-old guy who's poured into Shane. Shane's got all three kids gone and out of the house. He's mentor or disciple guys for 20 years. Um, and, and when he meets with Ford, and he gets to come back and tell me the stories, and I get energized, and I get to learn, and I get to tell my guys the story. That's a great, great experience. And I can't imagine a time when I would need somebody like that. So, Shane, you better live a long time. And I would just say that wherever I am on my continuum of growth, that A to Z thing, I don't know where God's going to end my Z, but... Wherever I am, I'm much farther along than I would be if I hadn't had guys 
Well, like Shane and others who have poured into me and have made time and effort to put up with me and to teach me. And so like he said, if you guys haven't had that, there are guys out here who um, are equipped and who can help you, and you're leaving knowledge and experience on the table if you don't tap into that. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. As we build for the journey ahead, and that's what this series has been about, is that we want to be moving forward to where everyone is being discipled and that everyone is going out and making disciples. And so I encourage you, if you've never been discipled, pray for one. And then second, also come and talk to us so that we can find someone to disciple you. Let us bow in a word of prayer. Dear God, we just come and we thank you and we praise you for this message, this reminder about how we are called to fulfill your mission. We're called to go and make disciples. First, that means, Lord, to make a disciple, we need to be discipled. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us here and those individuals who put aside those fears, those worries. And, Lord, may they step out in faith. And uh, if they're in need of someone to disciple them, may they seek someone out. And, Lord, if they need to go out and make disciples, Lord, uh, Lord, I pray that they'll be courageous about it and not depend upon themselves to do it, but to depend upon your Holy Spirit to enable them just share and help one person take their next step in, in their walk with Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.